as they're lining up. Uh, so this is the, the first day I have worn pants in three weeks now, two weeks since uh, surgery. So I don't normally preach in flip-flops, uh, but if you don't know, I had surgery on my foot, and so that's why, that's why I limp a little bit, and that's why... That's why I'm in flip-flops. Um, but if you have your Bibles, we're going to go ahead and get moving today. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. In fact, we are finishing uh, 1 John today. Uh, we began this book uh, several weeks ago, I believe about nine weeks ago. And just to give clarification, the Gospel of John, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospel of John was written so that we would believe in Jesus. The first letter of John, what we're in today, 1 John, was written so that those who believe in Jesus would have assurance in their faith. So that's the purpose of this letter. <coughs> and John wrote this because the church has suffered great loss because of Antichrist. Antichrist are those who had come into the church and they deliberately denied who Jesus Christ is. And they led many people away from the church. And so the church that remained after this exodus, they, they were hurt, they were confused, and they're doubting their faith. And so John comes like a good father would to a hurting child, and he writes to them to instruct them and to comfort them in their faith. And in John chapter 1-4, he says, We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This letter, as it's meant to instruct and encourage the church, is meant for John's joy, is meant for the church's joy, is meant for our joy, that as we have assurance in our faith, that we would have joy also in our salvation. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and move right into the text. And so we are doing chapter 5, verses 13 to the end. One thing we do here is we stand when we read God's Word. We do so because we believe God's Word comes with His full authority inspired by God. So we do stand in order to remind ourselves of that and to honor our God and Father. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let me pray. Father, You are a God rich in grace and mercy and love. And God, we have seen that all throughout this letter. You have revealed your grace, your mercy, and love in the sending of your Son, Jesus, to die on a cross so that we could be saved, that we could be forgiven, that we could be adopted, and that we could receive eternal life. And God, we praise you for that. Today, we're looking at the assurance of our salvation that you have given to us in your word. And Lord, I know, 
I know that assurance is something we battle with at times, Lord. I know there are people here in this church at this time, and we and they're battling with assurance if they're saved, how to have assurance, what that looks like. And Lord, I pray that in your word today, give us wisdom, give us understanding, help us to see the truth of your word, that as Christians, as your children, you have given us assurance of our salvation. Fill our hearts and our minds with the truth of your word today. Help us to know with great confidence the security we have in your son Jesus. And because of this assurance, may we be filled with great joy. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Um, so John, in, this, in these verses that we read, he uses the Greek word oida six times. It's the word to know. And he uses it six times. Verse 13, you may know you have eternal life. 15, we may know God hears us when we pray. 15, again, we know God answers us. Verse 18, we know Jesus protects those born of God. Verse 19, we know we are born of God. Verse 20, we know Jesus has come. Clearly, at the end of this letter where John has written so that we would have assurance, he is bringing it to a close, wanting us, as we close the letter, as we walk away, to have great confidence and the assurance of our salvation. So he gives us these things. I want you to know, I want you to know, I want you to know, I want you to know. And so uh, we're going to look at these. We could look at them one at a time, but what I did is I grouped them. I grouped the first one with the last one, the second one with the fifth one, and three and four together, and I think that'll make sense as we come through. Uh, So we begin, we have assurance that eternal life is only in Jesus. That is what John wants us to know. Verse 13 is the climax, and it is the summary of this letter. He writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Son of, the name of the Son of God means all that Jesus is, all that he has done, that you may know that you have eternal life. It has been the point of this letter, and as he's come to a conclusion, he says, I need you to know this. This is what everything has been leading us to. In verse 20, John seems to expound on verse 13. He reminds us that Jesus, the Son of God, He has come to give us understanding. The false teachers, they denied the divinity of Jesus, and thus His death on the cross was pointless. But John's point throughout the letter is that because Jesus is the Son of God, and they came in the flesh and died on the cross that we can have assurance of eternal life. And John, he gives two testimonies in this letter. In the beginning, he gives his testimony. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, he will say, I have heard, I have seen, and I have touched Jesus. He's saying, look, I've personally been there. This testimony that I'm giving you, I'm giving from what I've seen, heard, and touched. And then at the end of the letter, what we looked at last week, we see that God also has given a testimony. And that was in verses 6 through 12 uh, that we see this testimony that he has given. And he writes in verse uh, 6, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. And he goes on to say, this is God's testimony. At Jesus' baptism, we have the sun, or we have the dove coming down, 
representing the Spirit. We have the Father's voice from the heavens declaring, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. So Jesus' ministry begins with the declaration of God, the descending of the Spirit. The triune God is present. At the end of the ministry, the blood, which represents the cross of Christ, that he died and he rose again. At that point, when Jesus dies, we have the curtain in the temple ripped from top to bottom, showing that God has now torn the veil that has separated us from the very presence of God. And then the Spirit. The entire life of Jesus, we see uh, from the testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, was empowered by the Spirit. All that Jesus did, all his miracles, the raising of the dead, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the healing the sick, the casting out of demons, the healing the lame, the giving sight to the blind, the dying on the... Uh, then dying on the cross for the sins of man and the rising from the dead. There's no normal man who can do these things. Only Jesus, the Son of God, empowered by the Spirit, could do what we have seen in the Gospels. This is why John writes in verse 12, just a little before, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Everything hinges upon our knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what the entire Bible is about from beginning to end. It's about the salvation that comes to us through Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So you know this. Your eternal life is not found in a path. There's not a fountain of youth somewhere. It's not in space if we continue to search for space, which is great. But we won't find answers out there. It's not a math problem or a riddle to be solved. Eternal life is found in a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the world will always seek to divert and direct us away from Jesus. They will say it's foolish to believe. Uh, for one, they will deny that Jesus ever existed. Now, most, not even uh, historians who are atheists, will advocate for that anymore because it's been proven beyond a doubt that Christ has existed. Then they will say it's foolish to believe in a man who was crucified, or they will try to redefine Jesus on their terms, like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and so much more. They will say he's a good man, but he's not co-equal and co-eternal with the Father, meaning he's not part of the Trinity. He's not God. I think C.S. Lewis's quote from Mere Christianity is still quite timely. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's what many people have said. He says, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who, has, who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. It is not for us to think that he's just a great moral teacher. But we do need to decide, will we believe in the testimony of God, in the testimony of the apostles, the eyewitnesses, that Jesus Christ is the true Son of God? And if we do, if the Bible is true, then eternal life is only found in Jesus. 
And all who believe in Jesus have assurance of our salvation. That's why at the end of verse 20, John declares, Jesus is the true God and eternal life. That's the first thing. As John is bringing this letter to a close, it's the first and the last thing. He wants us to know everything hinges on Jesus. Have you believed in Jesus Christ, the true Son of God? For all who have believed can have assurance they have eternal life. The second assurance that John wants us to have is that we are of God. He wants us to know that we are of God. So in verse 15 and verse 19, we'll see this. And in verses 14 through 16, John begins to focus on prayer. He did this earlier in the letter in chapter 3. Um, and we'll look at more what he says we should pray about in the next point. What I think he's doing, he's showing, that, he's showing prayer as a means of, of revealing the personal intimate close relationship we now have with God and in these verses John wants us to know that we have great confidence that when we pray God hears are you confident that when you pray God hears have you thought of that when you pray God hears do you know that do you know that you're not talking to yourself it's good to remind yourself of that there's actually someone there that's listening verse 19 we have the reason why. Well, verse 6, let me, let me go. In verse 15, if we know that he hears. So we know that he hears. Verse 19 says, says why we know this. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So what's the point? John, throughout the letter, has emphasized that when we trust in Jesus, we experience a new birth. No longer are we a part of the world system. No longer are we under the reign of Satan. But we have now become part of God's family. It's been one of the major points. The reason we can have evidence of faith, the reason we can have assurance of this new life that we have, is because of the new birth that we have in Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1. Just to give an example. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. If you've believed in Jesus, you are a child of God now. 1 John verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Everyone who believes in Christ has the seed of God dwelling in them because you've been born of God. In verse 10 it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God. You are the children of God. And, who are, and it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The whole letter is saying, You, because of your faith in Jesus, you have a new birth. In this new birth, you've been brought into a new family. You are now part of God's family. So why does God hear us when we pray? Why do we know that when we pray, there is someone listening? Because God has saved us by his grace in Jesus. He's adopted us into his family. And he tells us he's preparing a place for us right now in all of eternity that we might spend with him. And he now sees us and treats us as he does his very son, Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we read that there is a day coming when Christ returns. We will see him and we will be made like Jesus. We already saw 1 John 3, 9, the very seed of God is in us. So we're being made like God. Romans 8, 17 talks about that because of our faith, we are now co-heirs with Christ. All that Christ has, because of our faith in Christ, we've been now united with Christ. 
that God now shares with us. What we need to see is that God loves us as his children, as his child, as his son, Jesus Christ. And when we pray to him, it's as we talk to our fathers. Our fathers hear us when we talk to them. So how much more then, when we as children talk to our Heavenly Father, that He hears us? Know that when you pray, He hears us. When I visit my parents, and I go to their house, and I go and I go into the room that they have for us, and it's still the furniture that I had growing up, there's things that are no longer there that were there when I was there, like my trophies, soccer trophies, and all, they're, they're not there. Now they still have them, in the back of the closet, behind old shirts, collecting dust. So every time I move them out, no, I don't. Um, I don't care about them. My parents, for some reason, don't care about them. Um, But, you know, they don't matter anymore. They're trivial. Um, Sometimes I think that's what we think God does with us. And when we pray, we wonder, does he hear us? Am I just an old, dusty trophy that, yes, once he had, once he saved... But now I'm in the back of the closet, and he's really busy. He does a lot of other things. He kind of knows a lot, and so he just doesn't have time to pay attention to me. I think there's a lot of Christians who wonder that. But what we have here, all throughout 1 John, is the opposite of that. That, no, you are precious, because you've been saved by his son to be adopted into his family. Not that you'd be put onto a shelf in the back of a closet, but that you'd be brought into his family. He would treat you as his son. He would give you all that he has. And one day we read in Revelation 22 that he will write his name on your forehead. We will no longer have a need for a son, but his very glory will illuminate the sky. It will be the very heat that we feel against our skin. And we will be with God, enjoying him for all of eternity. God has saved us, that he would be with us, that we would be with him, that we would be united together And that he would seek to satisfy us for all of eternity in the riches of his grace and mercy in Christ Jesus. You are not in a back shelf on a closet. When you come to know Christ, you are his child. God loves you, and when you pray, he hears you. So John, what he's done... He's reminded the confidence we have in Jesus, and now he's given us the confidence that we have in our new birth, which affects everything that we do, things like prayer. And so now in this last point, John wants us to know one more thing that we're to be assured of. We are to have assurance that we are victorious over sin, and we'll see this in verses 15 all the way to verse 18. In the rest of verse 15, we see that God does not just hear us, but that he answers us and he gives us what we ask for. And I look forward to coming back to this passage when we do a series on prayer and unpacking more in this passage. Because we're not going to look at it all. There's a lot in these few verses that we learn about prayer. We're just going to touch on it today. John's point in this text is that our prayers are the very means in which God gives victory over sin so when we see saints who are who are sinning and we pray for them that is the very means in which god brings them to repentance and so there's five things that i want us to see in this text and then we'll we'll bring it at the end to how they connect to our assurance in jesus so first we'll we'll start with a thing that stands out there is a sin that leads to death because i know when we read that you're probably going what's that sin 
That sounds bad. Um, verse 16, the very end, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. He doesn't command us not, but it's as if he says, you would have better time spent praying for other things than praying for the ones who commit the sin that leads to death. So what is that? So first, what does he mean by death? Well, verse 13, verse 20, the entire book, he's mentioning eternal life. The whole point is that we have assurance in our eternal life. And we know that Christians die. We know that unbelievers die. Everybody dies. So surely, we're not just talking about physical death. Very likely, seems like the most plausible understanding, he's contrasting our eternal life with eternal death, the judgment of God with hell. And so what is the sin that leads to hell? So he doesn't actually tell us in this verse. And so what we have to do is we have to look at the context of the verses around it and then step back and look at the verses throughout the whole letter. And what we see is that there's these antichrists who have come within the church. And we've read all throughout, these antichrists deny Jesus Christ. And when you deny the Son, you deny the Father. John has made that point throughout the letter. And for those who deliberately deny Jesus Christ, those who know the truth of Jesus, those who have heard the truth, possibly been within the church, and they say, no, we do not believe in Jesus. I do not believe he's the Son of God. I do not believe that, that his death um, accomplished anything. I do not believe he truly raised from the dead. Here it seems that, that is the only likelihood for what John is referring to to those who commit the sin that leads to death, those who deliberately, defiantly deny Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So let me give one more text just to highlight a, the truth of this from another book. In Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews talks about this actually several times throughout the letter, but Hebrews chapter, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. You can write it down. I encourage you to come to it later. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So he has these people that they've been in the church, in all appearances, it looks like they were a believer. It appears that they have been enlightened, that they've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've looked like many other people within the church. They have tasted the goodness of the word, the powers of the age to come, but it says they have fallen away. They've now denied Jesus. They've walked away and say, no, we don't believe that anymore. And he's saying... For them to come back would be like crucifying Christ all over again, showing the almost impossibility of it. So what we have here is that there is a danger, there's a warning in God's word about falling away, about denying. It's not loss of salvation, and that's a whole other conversation, but, but about making sure of our salvation, that we persevere in the faith. And what we'll see as we go through um, is that our salvation is to produce fruit. There will be evidences. We looked at that all in that last week. It's because of this new birth, we live a new way. If there's not a new way, then why would we think we have a new birth? And so we might be able to look like it for a while, but there is a time that many will come 
where they don't believe and they will walk away like the Antichrist have done. And John is saying to those, it, it, you'd have better time spent praying for other things. Not, impo- not wrong to pray for them. And surely God may save them. Now this is not given to us. So when we, you know, we, we do attendance and we kind of go, oh, these people aren't here this week. Oh, maybe they committed the sin. That, you know, it's not, it's not given to we start placing people in categories like that. But we are to know there is a warning that is given to us. But there's things that are much more clear in the text. And so that is a thing that's not as clear, so we can have understanding of it. But there are things that are very clear in the text. And so let's go on to these. So the second truth, Christians will sin. We see that. If anyone sees his brother, meaning believer in Christ, committing a sin, not leading to death. Uh, When we read John, like, like later in verse 18, and we read things like, everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. Everyone born of God does not practice sin. We sometimes wonder, so are we perfect now? Because John makes it sound like that. In fact, we've wrestled with that a little bit here in sermons and in some conversations that we've had. John does not advocate for perfectionistic lifestyle. Here he says, when you see a brother sinning. Chapter 2, verse 1, when a brother sins. So three times in our verse, he talks about the brother who sins that does not lead to death. So if this pops your bubble, sorry, but we're not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Christians mess up. This is why we have the kids excused at this moment so we can talk about this. Um, We're not perfect, right? No, they know that. They know it very well. Christians are not perfect. We sin. Now, the fact that our sin does not lead to death does not mean it's not important. Verse 17 says all wrongdoing is sin. It's still wrong. And when confronted, we ought to repent, which repentance is the evidence of our salvation. So that's, that's another truth that we need to know is that we are not perfect. Third, praying for other Christians to overcome sin is always God's will. Look at verse 14. He gives us one condition. Basically, God gives us a blank check. When you pray, God not only hears, but he will answer you and give you the request. One condition. It must be according to his will. That's what we have in verse 14. There's a blank check according to his will. He wants us to have great confidence. When we pray, God loves to give. It needs to be in accordance with his will. When a believer is struggling, we are not to mind our own business and to walk away, but rather we're to move towards them. We're to help them. Think of a lifeguard. When they see someone struggling, when they see someone drowning, they don't go lunch break. They don't walk away. That would not be a good lifeguard. Um, but what do they do? They jump in and they help the person struggling. They bring them to, uh, to hard ground where they can get out of the water and they can, they can rest. That's what we do when we pray. Pray. Prayer is a means in which we come alongside our brothers and our sisters in Christ and help them overcome whatever sin they're in. Verse 16 says, it's because of our prayers for others that God gives them life. Notice that in the very middle. He shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And Surely we're still talking about eternal life. So just as we confess sins, 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins and that's, that's how we begin our relationship with God. The way we continue our relationship with God is also by confessing of our sins and the way that we're often moved towards repentance is by the prayers of the church do you know that 
It's through other people knowing you, seeing you, wrestling with life with you. And as they pray for you, that it's leading you to repentance. John told us in chapter 3, don't be like Cain. Remember that? A couple weeks ago, Cain was the brother of Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. Abel offers a sacrifice. It's acceptable to God. Cain offers a sacrifice. It's not acceptable. Cain kills Abel. Doesn't start off very well in the Bible. Now a few verses later, God comes to Cain and says, Where's your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He wants no responsibility for his brother. But as a church, we are our brother's keeper. I am your keeper. You are my keeper. And one of the powerful ways we love one another is through praying for one another. In fact, um, a little over a month ago, we sent you a letter and about people within our church, so, not many, but there's a few who have, no, who have decided to no longer gather with us. And that's fine. There's sometimes things come that go to another church, um, and that's okay. But there are certain people who have said, you know what, we're not going to gather with you, and we're not gathering with anyone. And they've ceased to gather with the church. They've stopped worshiping God, and they've ceased contact with what we can tell of most all Christians. And so what did we do in response to that? We send you a letter, and we say, Pray. We have some brothers and sisters who are stumbling at this moment. And so what do we do? We do one of the most loving things that we can. We pray for them. Because we know our Heavenly Father loves His children. So He will hear our prayers. He will work through our prayers. That He will bring His children back into right relationship with Him. Love is one of the, is one of the primary evidences of our faith. That's I think love is mentioned like 46 times in 1 John. One of the primary ways you will love people in this church is by praying for them. In fact, uh, Chris gave an amazing illustration two weeks ago, something like that, uh, that he and his family, they pray through the directory. I was like, man, I don't pray with my family through the directory. On staff meeting, we, we pray through the directory. So then we started pulling out the directory, and we started praying for you all as a family one of the most powerful things you can do is pray for the church. Imagine if we're all praying for one another on a regular basis, praying that we stand firm, praying that we keep away from idols, verse 21, praying that we continue in our faith, praying that we resist sin. What an amazing way to come alongside, demonstrating our faith, demonstrating our new birth as we love one another. So that's one way that we can do that regularly. Another way to know people and to pray for people is be involved in table groups. That's just our form of small groups. We just really like tables here. Um, but listen, there's some people who say, you know, I just don't have time for table groups. I'm busy. If, if you know you're not perfect and you're going to sin, and you know that one of the means that you're going to be brought to repentance is through the church praying for you, why would we look for ways to avoid being with the church? Should we not look at ways, man, how can I be more with them? How can I have a close group of people? Maybe it's just a group of guys. Maybe it's a, a group of women. Maybe it's a co-ed group where we come together. We share our requests. We share our struggles. So now I have other people praying for me in accordance with God's will that when I do struggle, I have great confidence that God is working in these prayers for my salvation, to bring me to repentance. Being involved in small groups is not really an optional thing. It's to be the life of the church because we need one another. And on a Sunday, it's great. 
but we honestly, we, we try to have depth in our conversations here, but it's limited because of our time, because of the number of people around. We need to be in places, in spaces, where we're able to have more intentional conversations. Fourth, Jesus promises to protect us. So verse 16, we see the role of the church. Now switch over to verse 18. We see really the role of Christ when a saint sins. Notice the words, the one born of God in verse 18. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's, that's the church. That's, that's talking about believers. But then he says, and God will give him, will give him life. No, I'm sorry, wrong verse. But he who was born of God... That's a different person who was born of God, referring to Christ, the one who was born of God, protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We could go into a lot that's there. Due to its proximity to verse 16, what I think is happening here is God uses our prayers as a means of bringing us to repentance. And how does that happen? Because Jesus is the very one who protects us. So as we pray... Jesus' way of protecting us is through our prayers. It is how God is coming alongside us, working in us, that His Spirit within us would move us towards salvation. One of the means in which Jesus protects us is through the prayers of the saints. And so how does this connect to our assurance? God loves His children. And we need not think that when we sin, when we stumble, that we have lost our salvation. I have talked to many people here and outside of this church of Christians who truly, I do believe, love God and they wrestle, does God not love me anymore? I've sinned. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? And they wonder if they're still in a relationship with God. They believe that God is waiting to send lightning bolts at them to kick them out of, their, out of His family. What we must remember only those who deliberately deny and reject Jesus have committed that sin. But it's by confession of our sins that we enter into relationship with Christ. It is by regular repentance that we continue to experience that relationship with Christ. Remember, in 1 John chapter 4, it talks about Jesus died for us when we did not love him. So now that we love him imperfectly, he's not throwing us out of the family when we stumble. He's a gracious Father who loves us and is working in us to bring His work to completion that one day we would be perfect. And that's the process we're in. So hopefully we are becoming more like Him. We are loving the church more. We are having more and more victory over sin. But it is a process that happens in our life. Satan cannot kidnap us out of the family of God. 1 John 4, 4, The one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Although Satan would love to take us, although Satan would love to rip you out of the family of God, the one who is in us protects us. The one who is in us guards us. Christ knows us. He loves us. He protects us as his sheep. God protects us as his children. That we would have confidence in our eternal life. So John gives us, He's reminded us the confidence we have in our faith, the confidence we have in our new birth, the confidence we have in our victory over sin. And all of this confidence is possible because of God's grace in Jesus. And then he ends with one last phrase in verse 21, which is a command, keep yourselves from idols. It sounds strange. It seems like, well, that's weird. Just this last 
command thrown in there? Does it connect? Um, But I think it works quite well. Our assurance is under attack. All throughout the letter we read that there is an evil one, there is Satan, there are Antichrist. All of them are opposed to, to Jesus Christ. Verse 19, while we are of God, we live in a world which lies in the power of the evil one. Chapter 2, verse 16, we read, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. We live in a world surrounded by temptation. We need to know that. And sin will always attack our assurance. So John is coming to this church who has had people leave because they've rejected Jesus and they've wrestled. Is Jesus the true Son of God? What do we do at this moment? These other people are saying, no, no, we worship something else now. How do we move forward? How do we go forward? So John has has written them to comfort them, to strengthen them, and that they would know That always in this world, there will be things that try to distract us, try to direct us, divert us away from Jesus. There are idols. There are tons of idols. The idols might be ourselves and the way we want to redefine Jesus. Idols might be possessions. It might be things. It might be relationships. But he wants us to know that there are things in this world that want to move us away from Jesus, want to steal our attention so he's written this letter to comfort us, to encourage us. And so while this is a warning, I think it is also a means of encouragement, saying stand firm. You know this is true. You know that Jesus Christ has come. I've testified of it. God has testified of it. You know the new birth that you experienced, the love that you have for one another, the faith that you have in Christ, the victory that you have over sin. Continue to fight the good fight. Stand firm in your faith. Trust that God is working for you and in you for your salvation he's using the church to pray for you to strengthen you that you will continue there are dangers but we do not need to be fearful for the one who is in us is stronger and as we press on in our faith trusting in jesus we will have full assurance that we have eternal life and we will be able to see and reject the idols that the world has come and when we do stumble Because we will, because you're not perfect, I'm not perfect, we have great confidence that our God is a perfect Father who loves us and will bring us back into relationship, will bring us conviction upon of our sin through the prayers of the church that we would continue to experience the eternal life that we have in Jesus. So we're going to go to communion now. Um, Every Sunday we close in communion. We do this as a reminder for what Christ has done for us at the cross.